Again, our study this morning brings us to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and these are the words that he pins. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pig, the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in all the city and in all the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him. But said to him, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to to proclaim in all the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but when I read stories like this, I am sometimes left wondering why it was that the Holy Spirit chose to include such a record of events in the gospel narratives. Why do we have a story like this? This particular story occurs, we find it in all three of the synoptic gospels, the similar gospels, Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 5, and Luke chapter 8. And we know that all scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So as a result, there must be great value for us in this text this morning. There is great value in every text of scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 for it is God-breathed. But I am persuaded this morning that this text is included in the scriptures And it is intended to leave us awestruck, wondering, amazed, astounded, 
as we are brought face to face with the deity, with the majesty, with the holiness, with the majesticness and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's why the Holy Spirit has included this text here in his word, is because we are confronted with the one who has all authority. He had all authority then, and he has all authority right now at this very moment. The text before us this morning displays Jesus' sovereign power over chaos, over absolute chaos. Last week, if you were here with us, we saw Jesus demonstrate his power to calm a violent storm at sea. And this morning in our text, we will see Jesus demonstrate that very same power to calm an equally violent storm that is raging inside of a demonized man. Scripture tells us that Satan is hell-bent on destruction. Jesus himself tells us the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But Jesus claims that he, he has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus Christ is our great victor, capital V. He is the captain of our salvation. He is the one who triumphs over every evil by the cross. He's our Savior, He's our Redeemer, and He's our friend. Our text this morning brings us face to face with the evil forces of darkness, but closes with Jesus triumphing over that darkness and sending a once demon-possessed man back to his family, back to his friends, back to his hometown to declare, to herald, to preach, to tell everyone without reservation what it is that Jesus Christ has done for him, how the Lord has done for him, how much, how gracious, how merciful the Lord has been to him. Before we turn our attention to the meat of our text this morning, I think it is necessary to communicate a concern. And that concern is that we might fall out on one of two extremes this morning. Anybody grow up in a home that had a grandfather clock? Maybe you have one in your home now. Those grandfather clocks, and obviously grandfather clocks aren't the only clocks that have one, but those grandfather clocks have those massive pendulums that swing from one side to the other. Just like that pendulum, we can be tempted to swing to one extreme or the other when it comes to things that are evil, when it comes to our understanding of darkness, when it comes to our understanding of Satan and his demonic host and how they work. There are two extremes, I think, that give Satan great delight. So this would be one side of the pendulum that would be uh, in error to swing to. There are those who disbelieve things that are demonic. Things that just write the demonic off. Not giving credence to the powers of darkness. But I think, conversely, we can swing to the other side. We can swing to the other extreme here. Because there are also those who take up an unhealthy, inordinate fascination and interest in Satan and his demons. I think to swing to one side or the other would be to error. To fall out on either of those two extremes. To either discount or write off all things demonic and Satan. Or to have an inordinate interest in the things of Satan. C.S. Lewis in his book Screwtape Letters rightly observed this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our people can fall concerning the devil. 
One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased, that is, Satan and his host are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist and the magician with the same great delight. I briefly mentioned last week that the language Jesus uses to rebuke the wind and the waves, so specifically back in chapter 4, verse 39, if you have your Bible there and you haven't had to turn the page to chapter 5 literally there, let your eyes fall back to chapter 4, find verse 39 there for just a second. Because the language that Jesus uses there in 39, verse 39, is most interesting. As the terrified disciples woke Jesus, who was sleeping in the stern of the wind-tossed boat, and charged him with not being concerned for their lives, this is what Mark writes. He, Jesus, awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. The word rebuked there is the exact same word that Jesus used way back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 25, when he rebuked the man in the synagogue with the unclean spirit in Capernaum. Likewise, the Greek word translated peace, which is literally hush, refers to an an involuntary inability to speak. Likewise, be still literally means to be muzzled. The way the original language is used, it is as if Jesus were addressing a person and not just the natural elements of the wind and the waves. Jesus' response is more appropriate back in chapter 4 as he's speaking to the wind and the waves. His language is more appropriate for demonic forces than it is of inanimate nature. We'll see in our text this morning... That just as the natural elements, the wind and the waves, submit to Jesus' authoritative voice, Jesus also has authority over Satan and his demons. Remember the great promise that is made to us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15? Think for just a minute. Maybe let your mind catalog all the way back from Mark, back into the Old Testament, to the first book of the Bible, Chapter 3, verse 15. Anybody know the promise that exists there? It is a glorious promise. As a matter of fact, it's the first, what we would say, uh, clear teaching of the gospel. We call it the proto-euangelion, or the first gospel, there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Immediately following Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, God pronounces the curse. But it's interesting to note that the effects of the curse are first directed to the serpent, Satan, and then to Adam and Eve. What did God say to the serpent in verse 15? Some of you are turning there, so look at your Bible. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there is both a devastating curse and a glorious promise here revealed in Genesis chapter 3. The curse is death. But the promise is that the coming Messiah would crush the head of Satan, redeem those under the curse by dying as their substitutionary sacrifice, thus giving them new life. John, in the first of his three letters tells us that the reason that the Son of God appeared, the reason the Messiah has come, the reason Jesus Christ has taken on human flesh and become one of us 
was that he might destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, verse 8. What we see in our text this morning is a validation of Jesus' Messiahship. Because Jesus is the one who has come to fulfill the promise given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He is the Messiah who has come to destroy the works of the devil, to crush the head of the serpent. We'll see a foretaste and a foreshadow of that in our text this morning. If you're taking notes this morning, and I would encourage you to do so, point number one in your outline is this, the destructive power of Satan. This is the first movement in our text this morning. This is the first scene in the drama of our text this morning. It's the destructive power of Satan. Look at the first handful of verses here. Mark writes this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. It's the Gentile area. This is the east side of the Sea of Galilee here. Jesus had been on the west shore of the Sea of Galilee up around Capernaum, or maybe on the shore uh, just south there. Now Jesus has gotten in this boat, and he and his disciples have crossed over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. They were tossed there by the wind and the waves as they traveled, and now they have arrived to the country of the Gerasenes, Gentile area. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Let me press pause right there for just a second. Not only was the man possessed with an unclean spirit, But the very place where the man was, the place of the tombs, would have been an unclean place. Any Jew would not have wanted to step foot in this place. And yet Jesus takes this small boat with his disciples and pulls up right here. He, this man, lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him night and day, that is to say, continually, without ceasing, among the tombs. And among the mountains, this man was crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is the setting as Jesus and his disciples pull up here and meet this man. No sooner do they get their boat situated than they are confronted with the most interesting individual. A man who comes probably barbarically, out of the tombs, possessed with an unclean spirit to meet him, any pious Jew would have done this. This is where Jesus takes his men. Matthew's account of this story tells us that there are actually two men, but Mark writes only about one of them, which let me pause there for just a second. You ask, why is that? Uh, Why are there sometimes what appears to be apparent discrepancies Uh, among the Gospels, even among the synoptic Gospels. And I would tell you that there's not a discrepancy here. The likelihood of there being two individuals is exactly right. I think Matthew's probably exactly right. What Mark does is he zeroes in, he picks up on the prominent figure. And so there are probably two men here. Just as Matthew writes, Mark is just writing about the prominent figure, the one who has captivated his attention in this moment. He focuses on him. Look at how Mark describes this man. He says that he dwelt among the tombs, cut off from any human conflict, or contact rather. He was either exiled by the townspeople, or in his madness he he voluntarily resigned himself to the tombs, that is the area of the dead, the place of the dead. 
It's interesting to note that all society can do for problem people is to isolate them. We see that today, don't we? Put them in a home, put them in a facility, stick them, to some, stick them in some asylum. All, all society can seem to do. That, that seems to be the only answer for problem people or struggling people is let's just confine them somewhere. Let's just put them all somewhere and let them be there together. For all of our wonderful scientific and medical achievements, we still cannot manage the problems caused by sin. Fearful of this madman, as you can probably imagine, people had tried to bind him up with shackles and chains, literally to, uh, to keep him together, to keep him from wreaking, wreaking havoc. But this, as our text shows us, was a futile endeavor. Mark writes that he was able to wrench these chains apart. What power, what, what strength here to wrench the chains apart, to break shackles into pieces under the influence of the demons here. This man had some kind of superhuman strength, at least some kind of strength that was above and beyond that of our normal self. Mark tells us that he was unable to be subdued, which is a more fitting description for a ferocious animal than it is for a human being. You couldn't contain this guy. The Greek word demadzo, literally translated, subdued probably in your Bible there, uh, has the idea of that which is tamed, to tame something, to tame an animal. As a matter of fact, elsewhere it's used to describe of taming a wild animal or a vicious beast. James uses the exact same word demadzo when he says this in James chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, for every kind of beast and bird... Every kind of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the what? The tongue. Exactly right. Same exact word there. Demadzo. The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Look at this man's actions here in the text. Mark tells us that day and night, that is continually Without ceasing, among the tombs, among the area of the dead here, and on the mountains, this man was crying out and cutting himself with stones. He's so restless that he relentlessly wanders about. You could probably hear him from time to time yelling and screaming. He was always crying out, yelling out. The verb there literally means to croak with inarticulate shrieks. Crying out. Anybody ever been up in the Canadian boundary waters? There's a bird that exists up there called a loon. Anybody ever heard a loon? You ever heard a loon at night? That's creepy. That's creepy. This man was crying out here, croaking with inarticulate shrieks. Not only does he wander aimlessly, and indiscernibly cry out, but he cuts himself with stones. I mean, this poor, naked man was a mass of bleeding lacerations, scabs, infections, scar tissues. Here he is living in delirium and pain. Make no mistake about it, friends. The picture that we have here in front of us, though it pales in comparison to the real place. The picture that is being painted in front of us in the text this morning is that of hell. That's the picture that Mark leaves us with. Crying out, shrieking out, shrilling out, screaming out, 
unable to be subdued, restless, wandering around, darkness in the place of the dead. The picture we have here is of hell. This man is inhabited by a demonic power and presence. Again, he lives in the place of the dead. He has no rest, no escape, only unceasing torment. The only relief that he can think of is to try to cut himself with stones, presumably to try to take his own life. This demonized man is a wild, crazed, and untamable individual. But thanks be to God that here comes the one, capital O, who has the ability to tame this man's madness. The same Jesus whose power and authority calmed the violent storm at sea, who said, peace be still to the wind and the waves, and they obeyed his very voice. That same Jesus has the power to calm an equally violent storm in this demon-possessed man. Now, let me say a brief word here about this idea of demon possession and about the forces of darkness and about evil. I would submit to you that what we're looking at here in our text is the exception, not the rule. The exception, not the rule. What we're reading here in the text is very real. As a matter of fact, it happened often in Jesus' day and in the New Testament. Matter of fact, the New Testament does not assign a reason why this can't and doesn't happen today. Human nature hasn't changed, and Satan, uh, though he and the rest of his host uh, of darkness will be, they are not yet bound. But having said that, I think instances like what we see here in our text this morning are much more the exception than they are the rule when it comes to demonic influence, specifically in our day. Demon possession, as we see it in this man, is not always so blatantly overt. What we see here, we, we see an, an overt expression of evil in this man. Yes, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone whom he may devour. But much more often than not, I would submit to you, Satan and his demons are content to work much more subtly in our day. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. I would submit to you, that Satan is just as content to operate covertly, masquerading as a Christian in Christian circles and leading people away from truth as he is to manifest his power in overt demonstrations of demonic possession. John MacArthur says this, I appreciate it very much. Speaking about Satan, he says, he likes to go to church in a gray suit. He likes to sit in the pews. He likes to stand behind the pulpit. He likes to teach in the seminary or the institution. He's the father of lies. He's the manipulator of truth. He is much more content to sit in church next to the respectable religious person as he is to exercise such undisguised, blatant displays of demonic power like we see in our text this morning. And so don't write him off. That's foolish. Don't have an inordinate interest either. That's to swing to the other side. But just know that what we see here in our text is much more the exception, not the rule. Satan is much more content to masquerade as, a, as an angel of light than he is to display his power like he has here 
in the text. Look at verses 6 and 7 in your Bible. This is interesting here. Look at how these demons address the Son of God. So now they speak to the Son of God. Mark writes, beginning in verse 6 here, look at your Bible. And when he saw Jesus from afar, this is the man, the possessed man, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High? I adjure you, or beg you, or plead with you, command you by God, do not torment me. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's speaking here? Who's speaking here? Is it the man or is it the demons? Mark's account makes it sound like it was the man who was speaking, but in Matthew's account, the man's words seem to be attributed to the demons. Matthew writes this, And behold, they cried out, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Matthew eight twenty nine. I think what we're hearing here in the text is the voice of the demons. Previous to this, we're told that the man just cries out in unintelligible shrieks. He can't even speak on his own accord. Furthermore, this man would have had no idea who Jesus even was. Wouldn't have even known. I mean, here he is on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. No presence of Jesus there yet. Presumably a Gentile living in the place of the dead among the tombs. He would not even have known who Jesus was or what his ministry had looked like to this point. Jesus' ministry had been confined to a predominantly Jewish audience to this point. But the demons, on the other hand, they know exactly who Jesus is. And they have a desire to subvert his authority, to undermine his authority. The first thing I want you to notice is that this man bows down. Look at your Bible there. This man bows down. When the demonized man sees Jesus, presumably the demons who were terrorizing this man, when they see Jesus, he, under the influence of them, runs out from the tombs and falls down before Jesus. The word there is proskuneo. It means to fall prostrate before, almost in reverent submission. We see this take place, uh, uh, a subject, as they enter the chambers of the king. They get low. They bow low. They proskuneo. They fall down before in reverent submission. You see, in the presence of King Jesus, even the demons bow down and recognize his authority. They would love to subvert it. They would love to undermine it, but they submit to it. They submit to it. Colossians chapter 1, Paul reminds us that Jesus is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, that he is the Lord over all things visible and all things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And so when the demons meet Jesus, it is a no contest event. No contest. We know who wins this war. Bowing down in submission, the demons first asked, what have you to do with me? Or what business do you have to do with us, Jesus, son of the most high God? Now, it's interesting to note here that these demons refer to Jesus by the title, Son of the Most High God. You catch that? Look at the title that these demons use to refer to Jesus. Track with me here for just a second. To the Jews, God was El Elyon, the Most High God. That is the one who is transcendent over 
who is exalted over, who is king over. And, and the, the, the thought pattern there is transcendent over, exalted over all the pagan gods and rival powers. He is El Elyon, the Most High God. The psalmist writes this, I will give to the Lord the thanks that is due his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all the other gods. Lowercase g, obviously. This is the very position that Satan sought to overtake, is it not? Remember? Back in Isaiah chapter 14, Satan says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the what? Like the most high, he said. Like the most high. But that wasn't his title. That wasn't the title for Satan. That was the title that the angel Gabriel gave to Jesus when he announced to Mary that she would give birth to Jesus Christ. Gabriel said, he will be great and he will be called son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. You see, Satan and his host here in our text recognize that Jesus is El Elyon. That Jesus is the God most high, the Lord most high. And then look at verse 7 here. The demons then plead with Jesus at the end of verse 7 saying, I adjure you, I beg you, I plead with you, maybe even I command you, by God, do not torment me. Correspondingly, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew verse 8, records the demons as saying, have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, let me ask you this question. What does that phrase mean? What does the phrase before the time mean? Well, it means that Satan and his demons understand that God in his plan of redemption has appointed a day, has fixed a day when Satan will be bound and all the forces of hell will be vanquished once and for all. In other words, Satan and his host know that their days are numbered. Satan is like a leashed dog. He has range, but he does not have free range. I'm a cyclist. And one of the great joys for me uh, when riding a bicycle is when a dog begins to run after me, but I know he's tethered to a chain. Because when he gets to the end of that chain, he flies. It's the picture here. Satan knows that his days are numbered. When Jesus comes to draw history to a close, and we're waiting for that, we say, come Lord Jesus, come. When he comes to draw history to a close, the demonic world will not be able to match his power. But that time hasn't come yet. And the demons tormenting this man are fully aware of that. The demons' words here are almost like a protest. The time hasn't come yet, Jesus. They were reminding Jesus who could have very well destroyed them right then and there on the spot, that it was not yet time for him to send them to the pit. But their day is coming. Their day is coming. So there in the first seven verses, we see the destructive power of Satan. Write this down if you're taking notes. Number two on your outline is this. The second movement in the text is the redeeming power of the Savior. The redeeming power of the Savior. 
There's a marked transition here in our text. In verse 8, from the power of Satan, from the power of the demons, to the power of the Redeemer. Look at verses 8 and 9. Mark writes, For he was saying to them, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Jesus commands the demons, and we will see here with divine authority, they obey his voice. Let me ask you this question. Do you? Do we? I mean, Satan and his hosts obey the voice of El Elyon, the God Most High. When we read our Bible, do we? Do we? God's word is not optional to us, friends. It's not a suggestion. It's not a when it's comfortable or when you like it or when it feels good or when it's convenient. Jesus says, obey me. And not only does he say, obey me, but he says, the ones obey me by their obedience just demonstrate their love for me. How much of our love is demonstrated by our obedience to El Elyon's words? Notice also the name of the demon. Look at verse 9 there. Jesus asks him, what is your name? And he replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. The man who was demon-possessed here in the text was inhabited not by one, but by presumably a whole host of demons. You know, Roman legion was a group of military men that consisted of as many as 6,000 men. This is a whole group of of military soldiers, up to 6,000 called or referred to as a legion, a Roman legion. But the term legion was also used generically to represent just a, a large host, A large group. To say that an army of demons tormented this man might give us a clearer picture of what's going on inside of him. This is not some wiry, wily, discontent, frustrated, angry demon who finds his way to this man. Legion, for we are many, representative of a large host here. We must not forget that Satan is king over uh, an enormous host of subordinate spirits who do his will. And again, we need to know that because the Bible communicates that. We don't need to take up an unhealthy fascination with it, but we need to know that. We need to know that there is uh, an evil uh, world that exists, realm that exists that we cannot see. We're called to walk by faith and not by sight. And we know who the captain of our salvation is, and so we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who will lead us to our final destination. Look at verses 10 through 13 here. Mark writes, And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter into them. Interesting request. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. This is fascinating language here. Fascinating story. After begging Jesus not to send them out of the country, the demons asked Jesus to allow them to enter into a a herd of pigs that were just grazing there, feeding there on the hillside. Such is the devious nature of Satan and his minions, that after they were cast forth from the man, whom they had so long, we don't know how long, but so long had inhabited, that they still thirsted for mischief. 
They still thirsted for destruction, unable to continue to injure this man now whom they took up residence in. They now desired to injure the animals who were feeding on the nearby hillside. And so you ask yourself, why would Jesus allow the demons to inhabit the pigs? Just to have the pigs run off the face of a cliff. I mean, Jesus could have resigned. He could have confined the demons to the pit instantly or just destroyed them on the spot for that matter. Jesus has that power. He has that authority. He is the Lord Most High. He's the sovereign Lord over all creations. And again, demons, as powerful as they might be, are not uncreated beings. So why did he do it? I think Jesus allowed the demons to inhabit the pigs and run off the cliff to provide undeniable proof to all the the onlookers that the miracle of deliverance had actually taken place. Remember back just a couple of chapters ago, Jesus looked at the paralytic and he said, Son, speaking to those who were there, which is easier? Is it easier to say to the man, your sins are forgiven, or is it easier for it to be said, rise, take up your mat and walk? What did Jesus do? He restored the paralytic man. The man stood, picked up his mat, and walked. Why? Because it demonstrated to all the onlookers that Jesus had the power to do exactly what, it said, what he said he was going to do. And I think we see the same thing happen here in our text. Jesus allows the demons to inhabit the pigs, allows them to go careen off the cliff to provide undeniable proof to everyone who was there on looking that the miracle of deliverance had actually taken place. That Jesus is the victor, that Jesus is the one that vanquishes all the powers of darkness. The destruction of the pigs gave assurance that the demons or the unclean spirits were actually gone. You know, this serves as a, as a visual sermon, by the way. Think for a moment, all these pigs, just one after another. I mean, we're not counting sheep here. This is pigs careening off of the cliff. Okay, just think of the, the picture. It serves as a visual sermon that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. While some have charged Jesus with wastefulness, we must remember that Jesus is free to do whatever he wills with his creation. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He is the one who spoke ex nihilo out of nothing and created everything that we see. Jesus destroying pigs was not a lack of compassion on the pigs, it was not a lack of compassion or concern or thought for their owners. Jesus was willing to sacrifice 2,000 pigs as valuable as they were to rescue one demon-possessed man. Does another sermon come to mind? Jesus goes after the one. Does he come after you? have your heart? Has he tamed the madness in you? Has he arrested your soul and calmed your storm? Has he taken your sin and said, peace, be still? That's the Jesus who shows himself clearly in our text this morning. That is the Jesus whom we worship with all of our heart, 
with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. That is the Jesus, the captain of our salvation that we follow. That is the Jesus that we leave all the things of earth behind for because we know that we're just passing through and we were made for another world. This is the Jesus who when he says, obey me, we say gladly. This is the Jesus who owns your heart. And not only does he own your heart, but he's Lord over every room and compartment and nook and cranny of that heart. This is the Jesus that we see clearly here in our text. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave you with that as a cliffhanger. All right? Because I have four pages of sermon left <laughs> and 57 seconds to deliver it. And so we can all leave this morning. I think we've had enough. I think we've got enough to feed on here. I think we have enough to feast on. And I think this will leave us hungry uh, as we come back next week and we see what Jesus did uh, in the heart and in the life of this specific man so that all my worship team can make their way up here very quickly as they are. Let me pray for us and uh, ask that the Lord would apply his word to our hearts exactly how it needs to be applied. Father, we come before you this morning thanking you for your nature and your character and your attributes that we see so clearly displayed here in the text. Jesus, you are the one who possesses all authority. You are the one who possesses all power. You are the omnipotent God. You are El Elyon, the Lord Most High. And we thank you for that. You are the one to whom, as the psalmist declares, is worthy of all of our honor, of all of our praise, of all of the glory. The psalmist tells us to ascribe to the, glory, or to the Lord, give to the Lord the glory that is due his great name. Jesus, thank you that you are the victor. Thank you that you crushed the power of sin and death on Calvary's cross for us. Lord, thank you that there is forgiveness full and free because Jesus, our substitutionary sacrifice, was crushed in our place. Father, I pray if there's any person here this morning in whom the madness of sin has never been tamed, that you would meet them where they're at in this moment. Lord, that they would turn to you they would cast themselves upon you, they would run to you, that they would fly to Christ, the one who is able to take sin and all of its debt and all of its weight and all of its penalty and to pay for it in full on the cross. Father, I pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts, that we would leave here this morning full, uh, that the hearts uh, here would sing, Lord, as we, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May it be so for his glory. And all God's people said, 